Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Dress listeners, we hope that you are prepared this week for a nice big old helping of nostalgia because in light of the fact that tens of thousands of proms are going to be canceled this spring and in the U.S. alone, we thought it was fitting that we would bring you a bit of history behind what many consider to be one of the most significant rites of passage for American youth. And I just want to stress American here, Cass, because as we know, many other countries around the world have their own special rites of passage, and as also do many religions. But alas, we cannot cover all of these beautiful ceremonies and traditions because this is a mini so. And I'm stressing (laughs) the mini part of that. So uh, today we are focusing solely here on the American iteration of prom, which is shorthand for promenade. Yes, for any of our listeners out there that may not be familiar with what has come to be an annual springtime tradition for American high school students, the prom is at its most basic, a dance, which is usually arranged in affiliation with an educational institution. And before we dive headfirst into prom's origins, I'd just like to thank one of our listeners, Justin Vera, for submitting this question to us a few weeks before we all went into social distancing mode. And I was super excited about this request when it first came in because it was going to be prom season in a couple months when he submitted it. And and I had no idea at that time exactly how timely this topic was going to become in just the matter of a few short weeks. So thank you, Justin, for your request. And without further ado, we bring you a brief history of prom. And I say that, Cass, because after digging into this, prom has a surprisingly long history. It sure does. And we say this time and time again, April, about how we learn so much from the questions you all submit for fashion history mystery topics. And this one is no exception. There are many pop culture magazine articles and even entire books devoted to the subject of prom, which is fascinating, and thereby some of prom's history. And while many of the primary sources used in these publications date the earliest proms to the 1890s, our research actually revealed that the prom tradition is oh so much older. Yes, after quite a long time of sorting through really a frankly obscene number of articles in the New York <laughs> Times. I finally hit Pater. I finally hit gold. The May 7th, 1942 issue of the New York Times included an article headlined, Yale Junior Prom Attracts a Throng, 900 Couples Dance at 91st Annual Social Festivity of the University, which pretty much establishes the first prom at Yale as being held in 1851, which is four full decades before the most often cited Amherst College prom in Amherst, Massachusetts in 1894, which is what a lot of the um, other sources say is one of the earliest proms. 
One fact that both of these citations really underscores is that the origin of proms or promenade dances seems to have stemmed from the East Coast and, you know, those elite East Coast American universities in particular. So Yale, Princeton, Vassar, Wellesley, Dartmouth, Radcliffe Smith, and Mount Holyoke being some of the most cited in the press during the first couple of decades of the 20th century, if not even earlier Some of you may have noted that a few of these institutions just mentioned were exclusively women's colleges at that time, which contextually introduces us to the prom's predecessor, the debutante ball. Yes, and surely most, if not all, of the students attending these Ivy League and otherwise associated exclusive educational institutions would have been intimately familiar with the practice and protocol of coming out. And I don't mean coming out in the super fun gay way, (laughs) celebrating humanity's diversity of sexual expression and gender identity as we often use this phrase today. Instead, in the 19th century, the term coming out was used for that far more state affair when families, usually of wealth and means, formally announced their daughter to be of marriageable age and the young ladies made their debut or came out into society proper. And this whole process of a young woman making her debut was highly codified and one which we probably, well, we don't have the time actually to explore it in detail today, maybe a future episode. Yes, for (laughs) sure. But one of the most important rituals for a debutante was her formal presentation. This practice dates all the way back, actually, surprisingly, to the 1600s when young aristocratic ladies would have been formally presented at courts across Europe. So time and place, of course, dictate some of the finer points of this presentation. But generally speaking, the young lady in question would have been in her late teens or maybe her early 20s. And this presentation really signaled her entrance into aristocratic life and perhaps more importantly for societal dictates, her viability and availability as a bride. (laughs) For an example, actually, of this highly formalized event that lasted well into the 1950s, that's when Queen Elizabeth abolished it, at least in England. You can check out the Downton Abbey, uh, the character of Rose in Downton Abbey. She goes and is presented at court in season four, episode seven, and you will not be disappointed in her attire. And this brings up a good point, Cass, because exceptionally strict rules governed the attire suitable for court presentations. And for centuries, the color white was highly favored for such occasions. And yet Rose wears this exceptional robe to steel in the palest shade of pink. So uh, white wasn't the only color that was worn. We do also sometimes see pale pink, pale lilac, pale yellow, Um, but white, which is, of course, you know, the color symbolic of innocence and purity, was by far the most popular color choice. Following the downfall of the French monarchy in the 1780s, a new model of introducing young women into the marriage market came into vogue. So with the future of court presentations in question due to various political upheavals, the royal acknowledgement of the ritual was deemed a moot point, and young ladies continued to make their debuts to audience comprised of their elite social peers. So tradition dictated that the young debutantes dress in demure white evening gowns and that they be escorted by either their fathers or young men of equal social standing during this presentation ceremony, during which this young woman would have been promenaded in front of the audience and formally announced. Revelries would follow, which 
might include something like a ball. So heading back over to America, many a wealthy American family sought entree into the titled families of Europe by way of their eligible daughters and seeking really to emulate the manners and customs of European society. The tradition of the debutante ball found itself firmly entrenched in American high society for these very reasons by the 1870s. This meant the concept of a debutante ball would have been intimately familiar to the young men attending American Ivy League institutions like Princeton and Yale during the late 19th century. I mean, many of the young women of their own social set were likely going to be launched as debutantes, which was a -a once-in-a-lifetime ceremony really kind of indicating her readiness for marriage. And the concept of this formal ball as a rite of passage seems to have been co-opted by the upperclassmen of these college institutions as a way of marking their own pending graduations. These dances or promenades were typically given by the junior and senior classes to the exclusion of the underclassmen. Is this beginning to sound a little bit familiar, Cat? <laughs> it's prom. Yes. Yes, exactly. By 1894, it seems at Yale at least, prom organizers actually ban aspirational attendance by freshmen. <laughs> The New York Times noted in January of that year, quote, the freshman does not go to the prom. There was a time when this privilege was granted. His money was welcome and his presence tolerated. But the class of 95 has established a precedent. In a curt and unmistakable editorial announcement of the Yale News recently, which may be considered to have had official inspiration, it was stated that no tickets would be sold to freshmen. On such being obtained from upperclassmen in any way, the holder was to be refused admittance at the door. This may be considered final. (laughs) That's a little bit harsh. And when they say class of 95 there, we just want to point out that's the class of 1895, not 1995. Yeah, so Cass, these poor freshmen were left to, quote, slumber beneath the stairs to dream of rare realities and regal beauty where the promenade girl reigns supreme. And the emphasis here is being put on the importance of the prom for young women in particular. And this was, again, a nod to the prom's inspirational template, the debutante ball. So as the popularity of the annual promenade weekend spread from Ivy League schools to other East Coast institutions, the formal ball fantasy became a reality for increasing numbers of young women from upper and middle classes who were otherwise not intending at all to make a formal debut as a debutante. And in many ways, college proms at this time were really like full dress rehearsals for adulthood, which is interesting. (laughs) Both young men and women were expected to demonstrate impeccable manners and really to understand the etiquette, which went into not only the ball itself, but also, you know, those various other activities that surrounded it, which would have been held over the course of a weekend, as you noted earlier, April. So this could have included anything from teas given by noted socialites affiliated with the college, to musical and theatrical performances put on by student organizations, to sporting events, and even additional parties held by fraternities. So this is a really big deal. 
for sure. And propriety here was really the word of the day. And just as contemporary high school proms today have chaperones, so did too these college proms. Cass, in 1914, the New York Times noted that the Yale prom had banned the tango from appearing on its dance card. <laughs> in other words, the, the, the dance styles that were going to be performed at, um, at the event. And, you know, despite the fact that the tango was the latest fad in 1914, all of the adult chaperones considered the body-to-body movement of the tango simply far too salacious for Yale. And they were not alone. I mean, it was pretty controversial across the board, I would yeah. say. <laughs> By the early 20th century, the popularity of holding annual prom dances had spread from these elite private colleges to smaller public institutions, such as City College in New York City, where a junior prom was held in their festoon gymnasium in 1912. Although it's probably likely that that City College may have held proms even earlier than that. Manhattan College, for instance, held their prom at the Waldorf Astoria in 1913, and increasingly from here we see dances staged at luxury hotels. And at this point, Cass, I'm sure everyone's burning question on their minds is, but what were they all wearing? (laughs) Well... I have to report that things haven't changed too much in that respect. This topic of the perfect ensemble was on every prom-going young lady's mind more than 100 years ago, just as it remains so today. And really, the selections for prom simply followed the then-fashionable evening styles of each given era. There wasn't a particular sartorial mandate as to what defined something as a prom dress or not a prom dress. Aside, I have to say, from this lingering association with the color white, which curiously continued to be pushed by magazine editorial spreads about prom fashions well into the 1980s. And this was very surprising to me. Not that anybody really abides by that wearing white to the prom anymore, but (laughs) the people were still talking about it in the 1980s. Fascinating. Mm -hmm. So in terms of press coverage, the popularity of prom dances really hit a high point in the 1930s and the increased demand for formal wear across various price points. So often as low as what would be 100 today. So not incredibly inexpensive, but um, affordable for a lot more people. So even um, this kind of level of price point saw a new segment of the market in the U.S. fashion industry. So fashion publications were now chock full of ads promoting dance dresses. And in 1937, the industry publication Women's Wear Daily actually advised retailers to, quote, link your dance dress promotions to the prom schedule. (laughs) And even went as far as listing the prom dates for Cornell, Columbia, Yale, and Princeton. Yeah. And when I found that article, I was like, winner, winner, chicken dinner. This one's fun. (laughs) Um, So female prom goers um, around this time essentially wore age-appropriate incarnations of fashionable styles of the day. But what about the gentlemen? Well, they got off fairly easily. Um, Menswear, of course, being as prescriptive um, as it was at the time. Throughout time, this has really generally consisted of black and white formal suits, such as a dinner suit or a tuxedo. Adventurous prom gents certainly have incorporated color formal wear into their ensembles over the decades, but by and large, any divergence from this palette of black and white has usually been a playful outlier of an ensemble. 
The 1930s is when we see the popularity of prom spread from colleges and universities to high schools, first with private boarding schools like Phillips Academy in Andover, Massachusetts, which was holding prom by at least 1936. The teenage obsession, though, with all things prom is evidenced in the pages of none other than, of course, Seventeen Magazine, which launched in 1944. I know that's where I got all of my prom news, April. I don't know about you. From the 1944 issues? <laughs> I wish I was not that um, that creative yet, but uh, certainly in the early 2000s. So the 1944 December issue of Seventeen Magazine includes an article entitled, So You Weren't Asked to Prom, wah, wah. Mm. and it advises its readers to console themselves over the slight of invitation by, and I quote, making candy, dancing to the radio, Asking your mother to teach you how to embroider or playing Chinese checkers or ping pong with other members of your family. It was really the embroidery one that got me. (laughs) That one. So you're like, can you, like, you know, a sad teen just like wandering in the kitchen like, mom, teach me how to embroider. (laughs) I don't know. Um, You know, uh, these these things, an invitation or no invitation, it, it, it still remains a hot button issue even to today. And teen magazines of the 1940s and the 1950s were full of advice for wannabe prom attendees. And some of it, Cass, is more than a little opportunistic, I must say. For instance, there is a 1945 ad for Rye Crisp, which featured an illustration of a teenage girl sitting by a phone crying. And next to the illustration is some accompanying text, which reads, The worst things happened to me. You'd think I was the wrong number. Number. Tonight's the prom, and who asks me? Not even Iggy the worm. Oh, gee. Oh, go on and ring thing. And when she says thing, she's referring to the phone. She's hoping the phone rings and someone asked her to prom. The ad goes on. The best thing that can happen to you is to add charm by subtracting pounds. Simple for any normal overweight, the rye crisp plan. And rye crisp is such a delicious bread has rich rye flavor, keeps you bright-eyed with its vitamin B, just say no extras, have rye crisp as bread, enjoy great-tasting meals. So basically, this is an advertisement for a food product that's saying, (laughs) eat our product, and you will get a prom date. Uh, Yeah. Um, (laughs) Only slightly less misogynistic than that is this ad, which seems to be intended as a lighthearted graphic spread. It's entitled, How to Not Get Another Prom Bid, and it's in the June 1946 issue of Seventeen. And that ad advises readers, quote, big books and words denote a brain, all Beau will fear to date again. And if that wasn't wretched enough, April also displaying, quote, your talents long and loud, well, it makes your date ashamed and cowed. And exactly who is it that should be ashamed here? 17. (laughs) Basically, they're telling women not to let on that you are smart or talented in any way, shape, or form, or you're not going to get a date. All right. So... I'm sad to report that this uh, culture of shame around the lack of a prom invitation carries on throughout the pages of Seventeen magazine all throughout the 1940s and the 1950s in what seems to be this almost annual series of articles entitled Prom Probs or Prom Problems. Um, If Seventeen is to be believed, a teenage girl's anxieties range from not being asked to the prom in 1949 
cut to 1966 when the prom problems were where to pin your flowers and if it's okay to give your date a kiss goodnight, all the way fast forward to 1991, and there's a lot of discussion of the subject of prom night sex and losing mm-hmm. one's virginity on prom night. So we can see over the course of 40 <laughs> years or so, things have changed greatly. Yeah, and if physical intimacy on prom night has been a concern of parents of prom growers for decades, so also has been the use of drugs, alcohol, and then even just the sheer expense of the evening. A New York Times article from 1954 notes, one New Jersey high school's lengths to ensure all prom attendees left sober enough to drive, while the Catholic Church even weighed in on the subjects of proms in 1961 proclaiming the average prom evening to cost between $50 to $75 at that time, or approximately $450 to $650 in today's dollars. That's a lot of money. And the church actually is denouncing these lavish expenditures and advised that dances should not be formal affairs nor called proms. And why? Totally unclear as they did not explain why exactly they objected to the term prom. I know. They just kind of like made this grand statement and then didn't say anything (laughs) first. During the late 1960s, uh, general attitudes towards prom, we start to see them shift a little bit because of the perceived elitism of prom. After that happened, we see a downward trend in the overall press coverage of prom and apparently attendance across the board. We are talking about the, you know, anti-establishment era, right? The late 60s, early 70s. And Vassar flat out even did away with their annual prom for an entire decade, from 1966 to 1976, when it was kind of finally revived in that growing commercialism and economic boom of the late 70s, which continued into the 80s. And by the 1980s, high school proms seemed to have regained their appeal to students. Because, I mean, think about this, from the movies Carrie to Pretty in Pink to (laughs) Can't Buy Me Love, which is one of my favorites, the media really increasingly reinforced prom as a teenage rite of passage for for generations to come. However, prom's elitist origins also came under fire, uh, direct fire during the 1980s with countless lawsuits, actually, that were filed against school systems for their enforcement of highly gendered dress codes, but also, you know, this refusal to admit same-sex couples and or interracial couples. Yeah, Cass, I was horrified to learn of one particular instance of this. Get this. Up until 1990, the Peach County High School in Fort Valley, Georgia, held segregated proms. One for white students and one for black students. Yeah. This is a staggering 36 years after the Supreme Court's order to desegregate schools all across the United States. And out As one student at the time in 1990 remarked, quote, when I moved here from Missouri, I couldn't believe it. I thought all of this had been taken care of in the civil rights days. Well, apparently not. Uh, (laughs) It basically took the election of a whole new superintendent of the whole school system and an entire makeover of the school board before the changes which both black and white students and also their parents had been demanding for decades to go into effect. Just essentially 
on the approval of the school board. In April, sadly, many high school students with same-sex partners still continue to face discrimination when it comes to their choice of prom date. There are so many lawsuits on the records uh, that speak to this account, and I don't even know where to begin. And we just want to give a huge shout out to those trailblazing brave young persons who have pushed back against this sort of discrimination and will continue to push back against these types of civil rights violations perpetuated against students. With nearly 175 years of prom history behind us, it's more than high time that the tradition evolved to reflect not only who we are as a society, but perhaps even more importantly, who we want to become. Yes. And today, the question of to prom or not to prom remains a divisive topic. Questions of prom's lingering associations with elitism and the extravagant expenditures abound. In 2018 cast, the Wall Street Journal estimated that the average U.S. prom goer spent over $1,000 to attend the evening's festivities. And that's just average. Holy crap. Yeah. And there are, there are a lot of people out there spending a lot more than that. And and I don't I I learned something in this episode. Cass, have you heard of this new trend for promposals? I have. Oh, see this was all new to me. <laughs> Power of social media. Mm -hmm. So apparently, promposals, if you, like me, you apparently are old fuddy-duddy, um, <laughs> prom goers are coming up with all of these creative and inventive ways to ask someone to prom. There's a lot of large signs that are involved. Um, sometimes the promposals are themed around something that the that the other person might be a fan of, like, like opening a pizza box, and then there's, well, you go to prom with me on the inside, same for donuts. Um, I saw Harry Potter-themed ones. I saw Harry Styles-themed ones. There's a, there's a lot of signs, but lots of other antics up people's sleeves asking someone to prom as well. Uh, before we sign off for today, Cass, I have to know, we all want to know, did you go to prom? <laughs> and if so, do you have any fabulous stories? I did go to prom. I went to my junior and my senior prom. And actually, before you asked me about this, I completely forgot that my senior year, I also was promposed to. Apparently, that is not something that is new because, yeah, I completely forgot about it. My friends were keeping me inside of school. They wouldn't let me out. And I was literally freaked out like my boyfriend was cheating on me or something. It was super weird. And then they finally let me go outside. And my boyfriend at the time had gotten all of his friends' cars in a line. And each car had a huge sign on it that by the time we got to his car, it said, will you go to prom with me on every single car? And then my boyfriend got out of the last car with a rose that was as tall as I was and asked me to prom and it was really really cute oh see that's so yeah. nice I just feel like that wasn't a thing I'm a few years older than you <laughs> but if you're curious about this whole culture of prom posing you can head over to Instagram and just type in hashtag P-R-O-M-P-O-S-E you'll see lots of fun promposals and also um, speaking of Seventeen Magazine apparently they've gotten over themselves um, and they actually did an article of uh, recently on Seventeen Magazine's Top 20 Promposals of 2020. And I'm proud to say there are lots of LBGTQ plus prom goers represented in the top 20. So that's fun. Absolutely. And what about you listeners? We are curious what prom or even anti-prom antics all of you got up to on prom night. And, you know, 
over here at Dressed, we're never ones to pass up a fashion moment. <laughs> so please send us photos. We would love to see you in all of your prom finery if you attended in the past, or perhaps we're planning on attending this year. And we will certainly put up some of our own pics on Instagram on um, the stories feature of this week. And we would be happy to share yours as well with your permission. Well, that about does it for us this week, dress listeners. To all of our teenage dress listeners, perhaps you will consider still putting on your prom ensembles like April just said and recreating that special evening with friends via Zoom or that house party app that's really fun. And to everyone else, may you consider adding a little extra touch of elegance to your wardrobe in solidarity with our young listeners next time you get dressed. Please join us on Tuesday for our full-length episode. And of course, if you'd like to submit your own question for a future fashion history mystery, you can email us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where we post images to accompany each week's episode. And of course, this is also our Twitter handle. As always, thank you to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. We will catch you on Tuesday. Bye. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.